Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'd like to open in the second last book of the Bible, the book of Jude. Uh, it, it's just one chapter, really. The book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And I want to read from verse 3. Jude, verse 3. And Jude writes, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I want us to look this morning and have an open discussion about how we contend for the faith. My belief is that each generation of Christians have to appropriate their faith, assess it, acknowledge it, believe it, act upon it, and then we pass it to the next generation, which will pass it to the next generation. Uh, they quoted 2 Timothy 2.2 yesterday at the CBMC meeting that where Tim, uh, Paul would say to Timothy, the same thing thou hast heard and seen in me, give to faithful men, teach faithful men who will be able to teach others. So you see it goes from Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others, almost like four generations of the truth being passed on, almost like a baton. And I think at this time of the year particularly, uh, as we approach Christmas and then New Year, uh, you know, when I go past the newsstands, I used to make a hobby, but I don't do it so much anymore. But as you approach Christmas or Easter, you'll always see magazine covers like this. Uh, Secrets of the Nativity. Uh, why the story of Jesus inspires us. Uh, Biblical archaeology, Jesus, history versus tradition. Uh, Smithsonian, the search for Jesus. As if he's lost. Um, <laughs> how Jesus became Christ, Newsweek. Uh, life, special feature, who do you say that I am? So this is coming from a secular audience who questions who is Jesus. Uh, not that it's wrong, I think the curiosity is good and some of the elements they hit on, but I want us as believers to look into the evidence that we have for the person of Jesus Christ. I think it, maybe it was the most important question ever asked on this planet is when Jesus said to Peter, uh, who do you say that I am? Who is, who is Jesus? This defines what Christianity is all about. Nearly all other religions stand and fall on a teaching. A Christianity stands and falls on a person. If you got rid of Buddha, the, the teachings of the Buddha will still be there. Confucius, Lao Tzu, even uh, Scientology, get rid of L. Ron Hubbard. You know, and then that, that thing with the teachings. But ours stands and falls on a person. And so what makes our source of authority unique? What is different with the Bible than any other source of authority? And I brought some in this morning, just to go over, that everybody has a belief system, a worldview. They might say, well, I don't have a religion, but they have a worldview. Even an atheist might say, I don't have a religion, but he has a worldview. That is to say, how does he see himself in this world? How does he answer the big questions of life, origin, how did this all start? Why is there a universe? No universe maybe makes more sense than having a universe. Meaning, does existence have meaning? Does it have purpose? Or an existentialist might say, no, just live, eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you die. Like an atheist friend of mine used to say, it's just like when you shut out the TV and you go, Psh, and it's over. Morality, is there a code of conduct we should live by? And finally, destiny. Origin, meaning, Morality, destiny, what happens after I die? 
Now, when I teach new missionaries, our mission organization goes into 50 countries around the world. We stress these basic questions that all mankind has asked to some capacity in their lifetime. Thus, religions start and philosophies start, etc. But the key on four of these pertinent questions is this right here, and that's source of authority. What's your, why do you believe what you believe? Where are you getting that from? And many of it is in a written format. For example, the Quran. Well, the Quran would say, you know, there's creation. It would almost mimic the early Genesis. A meaning, well, you want to be submitted to Allah. Morality, well, you, you do this, don't eat pork, don't eat. You, you're, the Quranic law allows you to have upwards of four wives. I always say any religion that forbids me eating bacon, I probably wouldn't be part of it. And then <laughs> destiny. Uh, well, your good deeds, bad deeds are going to be measured out and weighed out to determine if you go to paradise or not. Uh, New World Translation, whose source of authority is this? Jehovah Witness, where they, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Book of Mormon, they say in the front page, this is the most accurate book ever given to mankind by God alone. This influenced one billion people. Mao. Mao's little red book of sayings. Influenced one billion people regarding their worldview. So, when you have all these, up against this, what makes this the truer, the weightier, and the only Word of God when put up against any other source of authority? That's what we'll look at this morning. Now, pardon me, somebody might say, well, I don't have a book, I don't, I don't, I don't adhere to any religion, I don't have a philosophy. Well, that might be the worst source of authority of all. What is that? What does the Bible say? Lean not on your own understanding. Okay, the Bible says, there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the ends thereof are destruction. I think this is what popular culture is about, particularly in the West, is there's no source of authority they're leaning on, but their own understanding. Well, I think this. I hope that. I'm going to try to do what I can do, live a fairly moral life, da-da-da-da. I hope when I die, whatever comes next. It's not really highly defined, but this tends to be uh, the prevailing direction we're headed into. And please, anyone has input, insight, questions, please raise your hand. I'd like to get more of a conversation this morning than me just kind of lecturing up here. So what does make this source of authority different than any other? Let me just open that up for a moment. Or is it? You know, the, the, the big thing, the, the capital virtue in the last century and going into the 21st century is tolerance. Am I right? Tolerance is everything. Provided you don't say there's an absolute truth, then they'll say you're intolerant. But in saying we're intolerant, what does that make them? Intolerant. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, our Savior is rose from the dead. Now, where are you getting that information? From the book. Okay, just let me take one at a time. So if you get your information from the book, then they're going to say what? This book came directly, that they believe this book just about came directly down from heaven through Gabriel to Muhammad. You see, if you use the book, we'll use the book, don't get me wrong, uh, in a second. But you see the kind of arguments we're running into today. Somebody else had a comment. I would, I would discount an archaeological 
Okay, so now we're starting to move in, you know, uh, ways that we can, so to speak, back our way into proof systems that we have a reasonable faith, that our source of authority is different than any other source of authority. And that is not to attack somebody else's religion. My whole adult life has been spent in missions some, to some capacity. I lived in, with my family in Southeast Asia for years, been involved in different countries going back and forth. So my thing is not uh, to criticize other people's religions, but to analyze them. Not to be critical, but to be analytical. Because where do most of people get their religion? The generation above them. From their fathers, who got it from their fathers. Their fathers. So therefore, if you attack right out of the gate their religion, what is that like you're attacking? Your family, their family, their heritage, their legacy. So that's not a good starting point usually. I'll give you an example. Yeah, Larry. Prophecy. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Prophecy. So what we want to do as we present this, I'll give you an illustration. When I lived in Thailand, we always wanted a house that had a fence around it, pretty high fence, because we at that time, we had three little children and they liked to play outside because there wasn't a lot of kids they could play with. But I was always concerned with a, a, a wild dog getting there. They don't have like pet dogs over there, you know. <laughs> they just run wild, you know, like junkyard dogs. Let me give you a hypothetical. Suppose I was to look out the window one day and I saw a dog out there chewing on a bone. And there was nothing on that bone, very little meat. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, you know, there's very little nourishment on that bone. He's liable to break a shard of that bone off and choke himself, kill himself. I'm going to be a really good guy and go take that bone away from him. What might he do? He'll bite my hand off. But if I'm cooking a steak inside the house, let's say a two-inch steak, gravy, mushroom, and I go down there real gently and lay that alongside him, what might he do? Drop the bone, go for the steak. See, the bone... The bone is like a false religious systems. What we must learn how to do is present the stake. Okay? Present the stake. In compelling terms, in a winsome way, in non-religious language, so they will at least temporarily drop their old belief system and look at what's contained herein. So let's go back to what is unique about the Bible. A couple of people mentioned a couple of things. We're going to look at this. Number one, the Bible is a unified story. It's a singular story. Jesus says in John chapter 10, scripture cannot be broken. It's one story, it's his story. It's what's known as the meta-narrative. It has a beginning, it has an end, like a good story. It has conflict, it has drama, it has a climactical point. Incarnation, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. That's your, and from then, there's resolution and you come to a, an end, which you see at the end of the book of Revelation or Ezekiel or Daniel, consummation of the ages. So it's a unified story. That's why when you look at Genesis and Revelation, they appear like bookends. Let me just read a little bit. In Genesis, you see the first heaven and earth. Revelation, you see a new heaven and earth. Genesis, you see the division of light and darkness. Revelation, you see no more darkness. Genesis, you see land and sea divided. Revelation, you see no more sea. Genesis, you see the bride formed for her husband. In Revelation, you see the bride adorned for her husband. In Genesis, you see the marriage of the first Adam. Revelation, you see the marriage of the second Adam. In Revelation, uh, Genesis, you see the entrance of pain and sorrow into the human condition. 
In Revelation, you see no more pain, no more sorrow. In Genesis, you see death enters into creation. It says in Revelation, death is destroyed. It's called the last enemy. God clothed man in, in, in Genesis with an animal skin, which means the innocent died for the guilty and there was the shedding of blood. It says in Revelation, the redeemed man will be clothed by God in pure white linen, washed in what? The blood of the Lamb. In Genesis, we see Satan's entry into the world to torment man. In Revelation, we see Satan is banished and tormented forever. In Genesis, we see God walking in the garden. In Revelation, we see God dwelling with his people. In Genesis, we see man separated from the tree of life. In Revelation, we see man is welcomed back to the tree of life. In Genesis, a redeemer is promised, Genesis 3.15. And then in Revelation, we see the redeemer is revealed. So we could go on and on, but what I'm showing, what we're looking at here is this idea, it's a one story. It's about how can a holy God have a relationship with a sinful man without violating any of his character or attributes. By that being his holiness, his love, his mercy, his justice, his wrath, his, all of these factors have to come in that God can reconcile man without violating who God is. We're going to see that. And that's why you see these constant themes running through this scripture. Holy God, separated God, yet he's constantly reaching out to lost humanity. When he comes in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, he says, Adam, where art thou? Does God know where Adam is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wants Adam to know where Adam is. Mm -hmm. Lost, separated, hiding. That's the condition of man, even today. But all through, God is working in his redemptive theme. That's why it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman will always be enmity with the seed of the serpent until one day the seed of the woman will crush his head. That's decapitas. That's, that's fatal. Why was the Son of God manifested? That he might destroy the works of the evil one. But in so doing, what's going to happen to the seed of the woman? He will be bruised. I am going to ask you a question. Who was bruised for our iniquities? Jesus. Okay, Isaiah 53. So it's tight. But all through, we see God's standard is very high. And that's why even when God comes to dwell with man, this is a very important differentiating point in the Bible that no other holy book has, and that is to say our God draws near. He's not only transcendent, but he's imminent. And so what he comes down in Genesis, he visits the patriarchs, he actually converses with them, makes covenants, goes up, it says when he leaves Abraham, he goes up, he meets Moses at the burning bush, he says he's speaking out of the flame of the burning bush, and then once he gets his people out of bondage, 400 years of slavery, he says, build me a tabernacle, I'm going to dwell with you. See, it's a God who draws near and dwells, that's very important, particularly when we come to Christmas and the incarnation. Any thoughts or anything? I'm kind of just moving. Yeah, please. I got to get a drink somewhere. Pardon me. In the beginning, he showed that his only will was to be able to be with this creation. I mean, that's why he walked in the in the cool of the day with this creation. Yeah, that's one thing that he's always wanted. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a good point. The really, it's a love story. It really is, a, a, you know, when you study movies or literature, they have certain motifs, you know, good versus evil, 
Uh, they're looking for the secret or the treasure, like the Lord of the Rings. But this is about a love, lover, just separated from the beloved. And so the whole scripture moves. How can God have a relationship with that which he loves? You see, and man keeps running away from that relationship. And that's why God has to enter in as the God-man. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's, it's very clear once you see how the message unfolds. It's a good point there. It is really about love. It really is what it, but in that process, he's crushing the enemy. He's dealing with sin. And we're going to come to this when we talk about evil. Because sometimes people say, well, why would God allow evil or suffering? We're going to look at that. But somebody would say, well, why doesn't God do something? How do you respond to that? Somebody ever ask you, if there was a good God, why would he allow evil or suffering? <clears throat> he did do something. <clears throat> Go on. Okay. Go on. What it's a proof? What if it's a proof of Christianity? Anyone else? Uh, uh, yes, please. It's a good question. I mean, I mean, Lee. Okay, the world is broken. Always remember this. The world we live in now was not the world God created in Genesis 1 and 2, yes? Because the last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis says, and God saw it and it was very good. That adjective is very important. You see, at that point, at that point at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, there is no sin, there's no death, there's no suffering, there's no sorrow, there's no pain in childbirth. There's not even, uh, Adam's not even a farmer working by the sweater. He's basically, what's his occupation basically? Huh? Gardener. I mean, he's, you know, he's like a rich uh, British uh, gentleman farmer kind of guy. And he's told to have a lot of babies. I mean, anyhow. <laughs> God stacked the deck in man's favor. How many trees do you think were in that garden? It must have been like Maui on steroids. Plus the tree of life was there. How many trees were prohibited from Adam and Eve to eat? One. How many commandments did God give? One. One. Yeah, but look at this. Man was created innocent. If he would obey God, he would have been righteous. And he could have partaken in the tree of life. He wanted to go the other direction. Same thing man's doing today. Turn his back on God, disobey his word, follow his own self-will, and listen to Satan. That's why the first attack is what? The first word, the first question out of Satan's mouth in the Bible is what? Did he really? Did God really say this? What's the big attack going on in schools and courtrooms and every other place? Do you really believe this? That there's a God? That man is made in the image of God? That we have a soul? That there's a heaven, there's a hell? You really believe that stuff here? 
Have God really said it? Same thing, nothing's new under the moon, under the sun. Somebody else had, yes, Jerry. Yeah, right. And now when the evil enters in, remember this. Can you have evil without good? Can you have good without evil? Yes. Yes. Can you have a lie without the truth? Can you have the truth without a lie? See, very good point. Evil, lie, wickedness. This is parasitic on the truth, on the, on the host. Do you understand? Without, without truth, you cannot have a lie. Without light, you cannot have a darkness, because how would you judge it? If I had a wrench, sterling, uh, aluminum, everything else, and I put it outside in the rain for three months and it got rusty, you couldn't tell that that thing was rusty unless you had the good here and you knew that that was the bad. That thing can't exist on its own without kind of being in contrast with this. So my question is, if there's truth, if there's justice, if there's righteousness, if there's love, where is it coming from? And if we're in violation of that, there must be an absolute person. Let's even leave the Bible off the table for a minute. We'll, we'll back into this a little bit. Do you understand this concept? Evil can be used for good. What did Joseph say to his brothers? But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To the saving of many souls. See? A little boy goes to the doctor. Every time he goes to the doctor, he gets a sucker or a coloring book. He just loves the doctor when he goes for checkups, right? <laughs> then he goes in one day, the doctor takes his shorts off, puts a needle in his buttocks, and the boy screams. And he says, he thinks to himself, he was my friend, I love him. Now he's hurting me. Does the doctor still love that boy, even though he's still going to get the sucker in the coloring books? But does he not love him because he hurt him for five minutes? He wants to hurt him for five minutes so that he's going to be not get smallpox or diphtheria for the rest of his life. You understand? Our problem is we have finite minds trying to apprehend an infinite God. It's like if I had a goldfish, he's trying to figure out what we're doing in the dining room. I'm serious. We're talking about an infinite God. If he just does not choose to reveal himself to us, we know nothing. But as Francis Schaeffer said, God exists and he is not silent. God exists and he is not silent. If he doesn't reveal himself to us, we have general revelation in creation. You know, we, it says in Romans 1.20, we should know there's a God simply because there's a creation. Just looking at this universe should tell us there's a God. And God says, everybody will be in standing judgment with that amount of light, just that there's a creator God. It was Abraham Lincoln says, everything I see teaches me to believe in a God that I do not see. Yes, Eddie. Um, Eddie. Yeah, John, gentleman asked about the Old Testament and New Testament mm. and the origination of the story. So is the God of the Old Testament the same as the New Testament? Any thoughts? I'm not open. Okay. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When Moses said at the burning bush encounter, who shall I say is sending me, what did God say? I am. What is that name? It's actually I am that I am. It's the most sacred name in the Hebrew script. Uh, but what does that, that infer? What does that imply? I am that I am. I always have been. I've been there before. But... 
He has no beginning. He has no end. Think of a circle. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Same apply to Jesus. He has no beginning. He doesn't change. He changes not. But some people said, well, in the Old Testament, he seems cruel. In the New Testament, he seems benevolent and loving. Anybody read the end of the book of Revelation? <laughs> no, I'm just asking you. You know what that's called, that period of time? The wrath of the Lamb. It's in Revelation. Okay? What I'm getting at is God is, his dealings with man change. Okay, the way he dealt with Adam and Eve is different than how he deals with Noah. He establishes a covenant with Abraham. He establishes a covenant that has requirements on and on down the line. God has not changed in who God is. Does that make sense? He is the same God. And, and this, is his, this is his project, if I can say that. He's going to do what he's going to do here. But he's going to be glorified through it all. I mean, when, when you look at the God of the Old Testament, you think, my goodness, he destroyed the whole earth, except for how many people? Seven, eight. eight. That's rough. I mean, you know, I mean, that, 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 that's scorched earth. But we don't understand God's ways. You know, and again, we're trying to figure this out. But all through that, one of the things God was doing there is preserving the promised seed. The earth, he says, all imaginations of man is corrupt. Whatever they want to do, they'll do. If they corrupted that thing, however, whatever they were doing back there in Genesis 6, all I know is some strange things are going on. If they corrupted that seed so bad, Satan would have been victorious because God could not send the promised seed, the seed of the woman, through Abraham, through Judah, through David, da, 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 da. you understand? To crush Satan's head. So he's, he, what he's doing back there, we don't fully understand here. If you just took a snapshot of what was going on in World War II when Britain and, and America bombed Germany, it was horrific, wasn't it? Dresden and everything. But if we didn't, what would life be like today? We might all be speaking German. I mean, they were invading Great Britain. They, they were on the march. They had those V2s and everything else. What I'm saying, that, that, that what was applied there, as evil if people might say at the moment, had a better, longer benefit because evil was destroyed through the righteousness of the wrath. That's just a small example. But it's, I think we have to put this in context. But no, the God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. God doesn't change, is what I'm getting at. His requirements for holiness are the same. It's just that now, when we left that old covenant, the, written in stone, and now we're moving into the new covenant, the law came by Moses and grace and truth came by Christ Jesus, we are in a different uh, how we relate to God now. Does that make sense? I mean, how many temples were there in the Old Testament where God abided? How many? One. One in Jerusalem. How many are in this room? If you're a Christian. <laughs> know you not that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul, Timothy, Corinthians. So um, does that make sense? Does any, something to add to that about God's changeability? Man's attitude towards God hasn't changed. Um, all the years. You know, I mean, this is the time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, with what authority you're doing this. Yeah, it's always It's the same question even now. I wonder often when there were calamities hit, you know, why the Christians need to answer why that happened, and why they put this or into it's not a question in the public places. You know, often it is God's people that have to answer. So it's an attempt, uh, you know, all the time to undermine the authority of God. You know, yeah, like you just showed in the article, 
you know, you're searching that Jesus, you know, and we have to define who he is. And right. the two great truths that the world wants to deny is Jesus himself, his birth, his death, and resurrection. Right. So if you look at the big picture, getting back to it again, maybe this will fill in some of those blanks. You have creation, fall, over at the end here where God's moving this whole thing is going to be restoration and recreation. If you, okay, chapter 2 of Genesis, chapter 21 of Revelation. All in here is the redemptive plan. God's working out his redemptive plan. Here is incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. That's, that's the climactic what Jesus calls my hour. So if you see that, you can see how God's working out a plan, but one thing consistent in the Old and the New Testament is the shedding of blood. I, I, you know, I speak to people, uh, Muslim and Buddhist, when I lived in Asia, they'd always say, we love Jesus' teaching, they liked his parables, but why the cross? You know what I mean? Why the cross? Uh, you know Thomas Jefferson <laughs> took the regular Bible, what did he do? Does anybody remember? Huh? He took all the miracles and everything that indicated deity out. They call it the Jeffersonian Bible. Yes, he, he's like a surgeon that did open heart transplant. A guy took out the heart, sewed him back up, and you know, he took that life out of him. But what I'm getting at is, why the blood? Why the blood? From Genesis to Revelation. Because life is in the blood. Okay, life is in the blood. Okay, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins so you have you have sin equals death blood equals life and therefore when life is shed blood is shed it's an indicator maybe a shock value to man look at my sin it cost a life even though at the, the old testament it was the life of the lamb or a bullock or something like this but it set it all up for when john introduces jesus and says behold the lamb of god that's Passover language. Behold the Lamb of God who takes, takes away the sins of Israel of the world. That's why we're all sitting here today. You understand? So that message of the Lamb or the shedding of innocent blood is a consistent theme. Remember I said it's one story all the way through. And I think it's one of the keys to unlock the book of Revelation so, is the Lamb mentioned 24 times in the book of Revelation. So the birth of Jesus, is that show... God is grace for some time. Hmm. Yeah, it says <laughs> the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ Jesus. You see, he, he brings in the new... In other words, we, can, we can't do enough to, to earn our merit, to, 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 to be in right standing with God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no amount of good works, okay, I can do to make myself right in God's eyes. I need a... I need a, a uh, intermediary. I need a broker. I need a redeemer. I can't do it. And therefore God sends his son. for That's the Christmas story. For God so loved the world he gave. And, and there it is. I mean, it's, when you see how it unfolds, it's a perfect kind of a unveiling of God's perfect plan of salvation. Therefore, today, I mean, always God says, look, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Another place he says, um, God does not want to see any perish, but that all my Jesus says, whomsoever will, the welcome mat is out. What is today? Today is the day of salvation. salvation. That's, that's free. It's, it's open. It's grace. You see? Yes, somebody here. Yes. Well, this also says it's not by the, Paul said in Acts that it's not by the wisdom of words that man is converted, but by the power of God. 
Mm -hmm. And that's how we as uh, Christianity stand apart from other religions. The Word of God. The power, yeah, the power of God. Great. Yeah, right. I mean, as you, as we move into, okay, so you have a unified story. The other thing about Scripture is, of course, that validates it different than any other source of authority is the prophetic element. And you'll particularly see this in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40, uh, 40, 42, 44, where God says, I'm going to declare to you things before they happen so that you will know I'm God when they do happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? He'll do that repeatedly, particularly in the book of Isaiah. But he, he does it in Genesis with Abraham when he says, look, I'm going to bless you, you're going to be a blessing, but your people are going to be in captivity for 400 years. Then I'm going to... So the prophetic is all through there. And Jesus will say it in both John chapter 13 and John chapter 14 to his apostles. He says, I'm going to tell you before it happens so that after it happens, you might believe. See, this is a powerful, uh, powerful argument for the validity and the truthfulness and uniqueness of our source of authority. I, I do it like this. Okay. This is uh, when we used in Thailand. It's blue. It's, it's a Thai English. It has English and then Thai. It was just easier to do the deal. And it matches. This is a Jewish Bible. You can go to whatever the bookstore is now. I don't even know. Uh, but it's called the Tanakh. Same books we have in our Old Testament. Okay? They're numbered differently. But it's broken down into the Torah, Nakuvim, Ketuvim. It's the Torah, the law, it's the prophets, and the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, etc., etc. But look. This book is written how many years before this book starts? Approximately. About 400 years. But what happens midway with this book? What language is this written in originally? Hebrew. Hebrew. What happens midway in the intertestament period here, this 400 years? It goes from Hebrew to Greek. Septuagint. The market language of the day. This is one of the reasons Christianity spreads so quick. One was the Greek language, and the other was the Roman roads. But it was just it. Today we got the internet, today we got other Roman roads. Anyhow, but it's 400 years. Christians did not write this. It's a finished book. I, I tell my friends that are not believers, I says we couldn't bias this book, and it's a finished volume. But this book must fit with this book like that. Every jot, every tittle, Jesus says. I'm going to fulfill it all. That's what we got. That's what they don't have. It's bulletproof. Okay? This is, this, yes, please. Um, how about uh, Judaism, though? So you got Jewish folks that believe in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's certain um, uh, things in Isaiah that lead us to believe that, but they say there's a number of things that weren't fulfilled. I don't know exactly what it was, but so they don't believe that. So how do we handle folks um, that, that do believe in the Old Testament but don't believe Jesus? All right, good question. It, yes, uh, yeah, go on. Oh, in the book of Romans, it says that the law shall not justify one from sin or something like that. Well, the Bible, yeah, the Bible says that Jesus came to his own, that, that's Israel, and his own received him not. But to those that received him, to them he gave the power to what? Become a child of God, or, a, yeah, a child of God. So, understand, the early church 
especially uh, Acts, the apostles one through nine, is centered where? In Jerusalem. Who are its leaders? Jews. Okay. Now, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. That's why Jesus will be on Mount Olivet. He'll look at Jerusalem and he'll say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He says, now your house is left unto you desolate. It'll be destroyed. But today, Jew, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, American, Caucasian, Mexican, how do we get to God? There's many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at the Bible, okay? Ethiopian eunuch, he came to Christ just when somebody explained to him Isaiah 53, okay? Thomas needed more proof. Did Jesus give him more proof? Yes. Yeah. Nathaniel didn't need very little proof when he came to Jesus in John chapter 1. He says, I... He, Jesus revealed something to Nathaniel. He says, I see you're the Messiah, you're the King of Israel. He didn't need too much. Paul, when he was Saul, had to be hit upside the head, knocked at a ground on the back and said, who are you, Lord? You understand? God will meet us where we're at if we're seeking him. I know that doesn't answer your question, but in a sense, Jewish people are like all people. What does it say in Romans? All have sin and come short of the glory of God. But they are welcome, you understand? Whomsoever will. So there is welcome in is not. Term, in terms of Isaiah, again, you have to take the full sweep, which Paul calls the full counsel of God. I mean, you look at the last chapter, the last book in the, in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, God says he's going to come, he's going to establish a new covenant. Um, before I come, I'm going to send somebody to prepare the way before me. It ties right into Isaiah 40, where he says there's going to be one coming, a voice in the wilderness, and says, prepare you the way of the Lord. So all through, just not one scripture, is this idea, this expectancy that God is going to come, visit, deliver, redeem, and be the king. Does that make sense? What we have to do, I think, is present that in compelling fashion. Uh, there's three reasons I think we, I'm not going to take real long, that we should study Jude verse 3 about content for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Number one, it strengthens our own faith, okay? It says in 1, Peter, uh, 1 John chapter 5, these things I have written to you that you might know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ your Lord. Okay, it strengthens our faith and it actually strengthens our prayer life. Read that same chapter. Number two, it helps us to share our faith. The more we know about our faith, the easier it is to share our faith. How many are in sales here? You know, you have to be sold on your product before you sell your product effectively. Am I right? Because it comes through. Something comes through beyond your words, your, your, your passion, your love of this product, or something. So too, if we really know what this book is saying, it's easier for us to share our faith. And number three, we have to be ready to defend our faith. Do you think Christianity is under attack today? Do you know 40 to 60 percent of young children raised in Christian homes, Christian church, go off to college, 40 to 60%, four years after they graduate, do not exhibit any signs that they're a Christian. I'm not saying they're not, but I'm saying in church attendance, changed lifestyle, behavior, hunger for God's word, desire to share his word. <clears throat> I believe this is, this is why we have, to, we have to do what we do, contend for the faith, okay. Yeah, one of the things is, and to answer the gentleman's question, you know, going back to 
prophecies fulfilled in one person? That's an overwhelming evidence for me to consider who he is. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue. And again, it's just like he asked Peter, who's Jewish, who do you say that I am? Everything. See, these, the Quran, they mention Jesus more in the Quran than they do the Muhammad. If you go just the number of times he's mentioned. But he's a prophet. JWs, they believe in Jesus, but they say in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. You press them on it, they think he's Michael the Archangel. Mormons, they think there's three gods, okay? And as God is, man once was, and as man is, God once, it, it, it's, everything is, on, and of course, this is atheistic to the core, but I'm just saying, if you determine who Jesus is, that will determine your worldview, your salvation, or lack thereof. There, Christianity breaks down very simply. He that hath the Son has life. He that hath the, not the Son does not have life, but what? The wrath of God abideth upon that person. Why? Because all our life before we come to the Christ, we're carrying our wages. I'm carrying my sin. Okay? For 27 years, John Murthy, I carried my sin. All this. But one day, I, somebody led me to Christ and he says, Look, he who knew no sin. Here's like my sin, right? There's my sin there. He says, He who knew no sin became my sin that I might become what? He says, do you want to become the righteousness of God? I go, yeah, I like the exchange. <laughs> okay? What did I give Jesus? Sin, guilt, shame, wickedness, wasted years, everything. I put it on him. What did he give me in exchange? What did he give you in exchange? Life, forgiveness, peace, Holy Spirit, building us a home in heaven. It took him six days to make the universe. He's been at our homes for 2,000. You think it's a nice place to live? <laughs> He's given us fellowship. Never minimize this fellowship. What else? Yes, Michael. You know, John, one of the things I think uh, sometimes intimidates us is if we're not at school uh, on the word to be able to have that defense. I think we though possess, each and every one of us possess our own testimony. I think if we're, you know, living a life that shows that we have this personal relationship, that will be the proof. Because people care much more, and they'll watch what you do much more than they'll listen to what you say. And I think that, you know, for example, Kevin sharing that testimony, you know, that answer to prayer, when we are able to do that, uh, that is even more powerful than to be able to give a, you know, a thoughtful response maybe that's uh, scripturally sound, not that that's not good to be able to do, but what people will really pay attention to is how it works for us. Mm -hmm. And if we're not living that joyful life, that peaceful existence where people say, I want what he's got, then you can be the most scholarly person in the world and it's not going to matter because they're not going to want to play. Yeah, right. I mean, that's another proof of the scriptures. It's, it's the transformative power of the word of God, uh, to your point, Michael. I mean, even critics of the Bible and Christianity will say something happened in that first century. Something happened in that first century. Because by the end of the first century, you're getting letters coming from far Asia, which is Turkey today, Asia, coming from a province, and he's writing to Rome, to Trajan, and he says, what are we going to do with this big superstitious cult called Christian? It spread that far, that quick. 
You know, why, why? Well, what is the one consistent message they're all preaching? Death, burial, resurrection. You can have this new life in Christ. You can trample on serpents and scorpions. He's making you a home in heaven. You've got direct access. You don't have to go to the temples and burn ins. You go right to God now, okay? That's a powerful message in a very superstitious, very oppressed time. So you're right, trans, and bring it fast forward to our day and age. That's why a testimony is so powerful. You or I am the world's expert on what happened to you. Somebody might ridicule it, deny it, but you're the expert. And when you share your testimony, you're sharing life. You know, you put that, even if they, they mock it, it's still in their hard drive. Yes, please, Chris. Yeah, you know, to Mike's point, nothing speaks louder than the power of a transformed life. And just uh, thinking about two examples of scripture, the Samaritan woman and then the demon-possessed man that said the study on a couple months ago. They're two of the greatest evangelists in the Bible. Not because they had all this knowledge of scripture, but, you know, people saw them before Christ, knew what they were like, and then people witnessed how they had been transformed after their encounter with Jesus. And because of that, many became the salvation, just because of the power of what God had done in their lives. And that's, that's a challenge to me, a challenge to all of us. Are we living in such a way that people will see the transformation and then ask the question? And then that doesn't minimize the importance of knowing the Word and being able to articulate the reason for the hope that's within. Because then, as God through the testimony of a transformed life causes people to ask questions, we then have the opportunity to articulate this. Yeah. Uh, Paul says we're letters written, read of men. And I, I gave this testimony before. Uh, Forty years ago, I was a medic in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. I was stationed two tours of duty in Thailand. One guy in my barracks was Christian. Looking back, I think others might have been, but they had bushels there, they're hiding it well. But this one guy was the real deal, Joe Pace. And he lived a straight-up life. And we worked in a medical lab, but we shared the same vehicle. We used to take care of a three-quarters on truck. His life influenced my life. That three years I got discharged from the Army back here in the States, I came to Christ. But I think he planted seeds in my heart. And he probably didn't even know he was doing it. He was, he was a bright light in a dark place. And I always look for, if I could call him, you know, through this GI locator stuff, I would call him and thank him. And say, Joe, and, you know, you brought me to Christ and... You know, the rest was history. I was able to go back there as a, as a missionary. And he'd say, who? John Murtha. He'd fall <laughs> off his chair. John Murtha, come on. But, I mean, that's the power of your life and my life as we just walk through life, uh, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are bright lights in a dark world. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and what? Glorify God. Glorify God. I'm going to start bringing it to close. A couple of, yeah, real quick. It's interesting as so many people are coming against the Bible and the validity of the Bible that I believe it's this week that a 500,000 square foot, hmm. 800 million museum is opening, uh, Museum of the yeah. Bible, right yeah. in the center of our nation's capital. Yeah, one of the God biggest. finds a way to keep the truth coming, you know, right in our faces, doesn't he? Yeah, the Word of God is not going anywhere. We go, it stays. You know, Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word, and it has. It's not only endured forever, it's just growing. If you look what's going on in China and South America and all of that. Let me give you another two proof systems, then i got to close. One is manuscript. You see, to prove antiquity, you can't use the normal scientific method. In science, you observe a phenomena, and it's repeatable. I mean, you heat water to 212 degrees, what does it become? Steam. I always will. If you reduce it down to 32 degrees, what does it become? Ice. Ice. You plant corn 
You're not going to get apple trees coming up. There's laws, okay? You, that's repeatable. Antiquity, you have to use historical methods of research, like Lee brought out, you're looking for history. One of the ways is manuscripts. We have over 5,000 <coughs> Greek manuscripts, whole or partial, regarding the New Testament. And the key there is you're looking for number of parchments or manuscripts, and the closer to the original, what they call the autogram. There's over 5,000 that are written late 1st, early 2nd century. Let me give you an example. The works of Plato, uh, written around 400 BC. Only seven copies have survived. The earliest surviving manuscript was copied between AD 800 and 900, more than 1,200 years after the original document was written. Listen to this, New Testament. Written between 60 and 100 AD. More than 5,700 portions have survived. Complete manuscripts of the New Testament have survived from the late third or early fourth centuries. Uh, hundreds of fragments and manuscripts have survived from the second, third, and fourth centuries. That's, that's multiple manuscripts close to the original. That's, that's powerful. And when you put this on the table, they get a little itchy, you know, because they keep moving the goalpost on us. They go, well, I say to them, do you believe Plato really lived or Socrates? Oh yeah, we have these writings. Uh, what's the distance? Well, like 1,000, 1,200 years after, I says, okay, how many copies? Seven, eight, they're in these museums. I go, okay. How about New Testament, if we have over 5,000 in the mid-2nd uh, century, early 3rd century? Well, you know, we don't know. I go, you keep moving the goalpost on me. Come on. <laughs> they don't play by the same rules, the critics. The other thing is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the elephant in the room. He's the dinosaur. He occupies human history. And he shouldn't in so many ways. You have an itinerant carpenter preacher on the backside of the Roman Empire in a little provincial place called the Galilee. It wasn't even Jerusalem or Antioch or Carthage, not these major cities. He's a preacher, carpenter. He gets 12 men around him that we would not have get if we're starting a business, let alone an international franchising business. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> he dies a criminal's death. Now, I had an Uncle George, and he died at the Ohio State Penitentiary. We would not celebrate his birthday every year. Hey, oh, good old Uncle George. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but why, 2,000 years later, next month, I don't care how materialistic it gets, and how this, and this, and this, and that, when I was in Asia, they celebrated Christmas. They didn't know what it was about. They were decorating the stores. Why is it this one man, not Napoleon, not Caesar, not Gandhi, why is it this man? affected humanity for the good like that unless he's God incarnate so that's that's the overview I mean we'll drill down in the future on some of these topics but you can prove it but the systems we have built in the way God delivered this message to us in a dual system Old New Testament nobody else has that yes dear so, so as you started off the conversation you said that people were saying you know why so much bad things happen if there's a God yeah, okay, to close, it, it, to explain evil, suffering, or death in the world today, it, it, the, the world is broken. All religions know that there's something wrong with this place, okay? They try to remedy it. Buddhism try to get out of suffering, blah, blah. But who puts the best framework? Who explains it the best? I believe Christianity. I know Christianity because why? It's saying the, it wasn't always like this. Through man's fault, disobeys God, allows Satan in the front door, goes this wayward way. Jesus, God said, you will die. This is going to happen. Man is now not evolving. He's devolving. 
And then finally, Jesus comes, death, burial, resurrection, and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, what's the last enemy of mankind that he destroys? Death. Death's the problem, both spiritual and physical. Jesus takes care of that problem. You can frame it if a person's willing to listen. Yes, Mark, I will close on you. I was just going to say what I love is whether you're atheist, Buddhist, Confucius, uh, socialist, uh, free market, whatever, every time you write down the date, you validate one event and one event alone, no matter what your belief system is, and that is, in fact, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. He's, he, the whole calendar splits on him. Um, Lee, would you close us in a word of prayer, please? Thank you, man.